So, Father, we come to you as children who need you and need your mercy and grace and help. And I ask this evening that you would be merciful to us to help us to understand your word on, on key issues, even key issues for, of our day, uh, knowing that these are creation order issues uh, that even relate to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, oh, how we love our Saviour's name. May he be honoured this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, preached from Matthew 11 this morning, and Jesus called to come to, to me. He says, come to me. Uh, he gives new life. He gives salvation. Um, and then in that passage, he speaks about being yoked to him. So, coming to Jesus means surrendering and being yoked to him and walking in his will and his way according to his word. And now, this evening, we hear some of the words of Jesus Uh, about what he says about manhood, womanhood and marriage. What Jesus says about manhood, womanhood and marriage. That's the title of uh, the sermon. And it's it's maybe a slightly different, I'm going to preach expository, but I've delivered this message at conferences before. um, As it hits home on God's design for sexuality. Um, For most of the... uh, history of the church uh, the word complementarianism is a word that theologians have have, have designed or or used to elegantly describe the Bible's teaching that God creates man, male and female equally in his image but that he's he's assigned different roles to them in the home and church so that the Godward responsibility for loving sacrificial headship falls to the husband in the home and to biblically qualified men in the church. And for most of church history, that complementarian view, by the way, that's complement with an E, not with an I. Complement is like, I really like your tie, Chola. That's a compliment. This is complement, like complete, yeah? Complement. Uh, this complementarian view of the sexes would have been the understanding of God's design down the centuries. But in the last century, particularly the last 50 years, a radical feminist agenda has inspired egalitarian readings of the scripture. Now, egalitarianism, as opposed to complementarianism, egalitarianism says men and women are equal in value before God, so they're with the complementarians there, but there's no differences in roles, they say. They flatten the differences played out in the roles. And we'd be uh, unwise if we didn't recognise that this notion has gripped our culture and heavily influenced the church. The culture has pitted men and women against each other. This means that one side wins and and the other side loses. There's no togetherness. There's no complementarian working together. No teamwork. Either men rule the world or women do. And in an age of progress, or so-called progress, the sexes are more divided than ever. Uh, Boys do not know what manhood is. They don't know what it is to be a man. And many girls have been trained to think they know what womanhood is, but they're just as confused as the boys. Parents now have a real problem on their hands in bringing up their children, as the culture is teaching them what is opposed to God's design. This is rooted in confusion over sexual identity and expression of sexuality, which has so accelerated in the last 50 years, the last 10 years. I mean, we cannot believe that, that, can we? I mean, see people nodding. You can't believe how quickly this has come upon us. But we didn't just arrive here overnight. I'll just give you a few markers. 
When birth control and legal abortion came in in the last century, sex could happen without the consequence of a baby. Sex could become something to do. This made it easier then not to keep sex within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. This then facilitated the normalcy of cohabitation. IVF introduced another option. With the introduction of contraception, a man and woman can have sex without babies. With IVF, a man and woman can have babies without sex. Interesting. Suddenly it becomes less normal for a man and woman in marriage as the context for a baby. This then paved the way for marriage itself to be redefined, to the normalisation of homosexuality as a moral and acceptable choice. This opened then the door for two women together and two men together to have children through IVF or adoption. And now the family has been totally redefined. So if you say that a husband is, by definition, a man who is married to a woman, and a wife is, by definition, a woman who is married to a man. If you say, even with the greatest love in the world, it's morally wrong for two men or two women to be together, you will be branded a bigot, unloving, and increasingly illegal, as laws are changed. And because subjective feeling, my subjective personal feeling, trumps objective reality, the next step, transgenderism, is rapidly propelling us towards a gender-neutral culture where six-year-olds can choose their gender. We are facing the real prospects of the opposite sex being able to shower and wash with us in sports facilities. In fact, that's already happened to somebody in our church in Canada already. Biological males competing in female sports teams or against them in individual events. There are over 70 different designations for gender on Facebook. 70. Recently, uh, people are now being allowed to legally reclassify themselves as a third sex. It's called non-binary. So friends, we, we need God's grace today. Because there are maybe people in here today who are struggling in marriages, singles who desire to be married, some who struggle with same-sex attraction or, or gender dysphoria of some kind, some who are indulged in some kind of sexual immorality now or in the past. Not one of us deserves God's favour. All of us needs our desires redirected and reordered. So we need to keep the cross in view because the cross levels us all as sinners before a holy God and lifts us because of the mercy and grace of God to extend mercy to others even as we live in purity ourselves. Remember the Apostle Paul's words. It's important to remember Paul's words. He says this to the Corinthian church, which was a church in dire need of correction. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter, but will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. So he points at the church and knowing himself as well. But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So we've got to ground ourselves in the security and identity and grace of the gospel. Washed, sanctified, justified. And now as new creations, 
we can live in obedience to Christ, yoked to Christ. And then we can extend mercy to others, even as we stand firm on truth. We, want to, we don't want to be uh, angry anti-LGBTQ Christians. We want to be merciful, loving Christians who know God's truth and extend that to others for their good. And to engage in the battle for sanctification in your own heart. So it's clear that the modern world is in the midst of sexual confusion and immorality. And yet to understand manhood and womanhood and marriage and to heal the divide between the sexes, we need to go to a different source than newspapers or magazines or or TV programs. To appreciate the grand design of God for humanity, you need to go to the Bible. Because the Bible shows God's vision for men and women. The world is confused Perhaps you're a bit confused here even this evening. But being a Christian transforms all of life and God gives the template for living. So for the rest of our time, we're going to spend it in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 19, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 19. And I'm just going to read two or three verses here. Matthew 19, verse 3. And what you need to do here, you need to have nimble fingers. You need to keep your finger on Matthew 19, but you also need to have a finger on Genesis, which is obviously the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. So if you just keep a finger on Genesis 1 and 2, but but we're concentrating on Matthew 19. Verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, him is Jesus, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So I've got five truths for you this evening from the text today. Five truths that Jesus gives us on manhood, womanhood and marriage. So let's go. Truth number one. Jesus' foundation on manhood, womanhood and marriage is God's word at creation. Jesus' foundation, God's word at creation. What's happening here is that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They tested him, it says by asking him a question on marriage and divorce. So what does Jesus do? Jesus appeals to God's word at creation. He answers, have you not read? This is Jesus, fully God and fully man, but he's a radically God-centred man, which means he's a radically word-centred man. If you remember earlier in Matthew, Matthew 4, where Satan tests Jesus in in the wilderness and, and, and tempts him, what was Jesus' response to Satan's temptations every time? He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. So when you are asked as a Christian or when you are questioned or tested on what you believe is right on the issues of sex and sexuality and when you think about defining yourself and how you ought to live, is your first thought, what does the Bible say? Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. 
In the battle to recover biblical manhood and womanhood, the big issue at stake is the attack on the authority of the word of God. It is the same in every era, but biblical wisdom is the ability to see what, uh, what topics, what issues are most under attack in our era. And this is one of them. The Pharisees are attacking Jesus. They appeal to other scores of thought, even somewhat scriptural, but their hearts and their application are wrong. And they want to trip Jesus up. And Jesus goes back to basics. Jesus' foundation in talking about manhood, womanhood and marriage is the word of the creator at creation. And here in Matthew 19, he quotes from some of the very first words in the Bible in Genesis 1. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's referring back to Genesis 1 and, and verses 26 and 27. But let me just read verse 27, which says, if you see it, if you've got your finger on Genesis 1:27 so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them so when speaking about sexuality gender we we need not only a good theology of redemption we need a good theology of creation friends God the creator made you even as Pastor Chola chose that reading from Psalm 19 and prayed. This is God, our creator. That's an amazing thought. But we don't ponder it enough, do we? It should make us feel very small and yet very honoured at the same time. I mean, you and I were created. We didn't exist at one point. God gave us life at one point and he will take it at another point. In this world, at least, unless we have eternal life in Christ we're totally contingent upon God. Who, who's in charge around here? Pastor Chola? To some extent, yes. God is in charge. Who's in charge when hurricanes hit or earthquakes hit or you experience a job loss or cancer or death? Who's in charge? God is in charge. God is in charge of your life and he tells you what you are and how you should behave. And this is important for you to remember as a, as a man or a woman. As a young man or a young woman. See a, a couple of you in here. You're not made to do your own thing. You're not in charge. In fact, you're very small compared to almighty God who made you. But you're also invested with great honour. You are not the product of a chemical explosion. Or a series of evolutionary changes from an amoeba to a human. You've been directly made by God in the image of God to say something about God. This means that human beings have great worth in God's eyes. And so we should treat both our own souls and bodies and the souls and bodies of other people with great care. And we need to remember that as we begin to talk about distortions of sexuality so that we do have compassion and understanding. All people have worth because they are created in God's image. Only men and women in all of creation were created in God's image. Animals weren't. So we must go back to the word of the creator in creation as our authority and sufficiency in describing manhood, womanhood and marriage. You're made by God, for God, in the image of God. You might be asking questions tonight. 
You might be feeling all sorts of things, but feelings and questions don't define your identity. God's intention of creation defines your identity and it's renewed in Jesus Christ. So like Jesus Christ, then we must return to God's word at creation as our foundation for manhood, womanhood and marriage. That's truth number one, which leads to truth number two. God created fixed binary sexes. God created fixed binary sexes. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus also quoting Genesis 1 here to emphasise that there are two sexes involved in a marriage and there are only two sexes in creation and they are fixed sexes from the beginning, male and female. The Bible is telling us this, that God did this. He made men and women, he designed binary sexes and he designed their form and frame. So you, this evening, here, you are either male or female. There is no in-between. You will hear a lot uh, said nowadays about your gender being different from your birth sex. In other words, people are saying that you might be born male and that's your sex, or you may have heard the phrase sex assigned at birth. That's the sex assigned at birth. But your gender is something you can choose later. So gender is a social construct that is on a spectrum. So then transgenderism represents a rejection of what theologians have called gender essentialist vision of humanity. See, in transgender ideology, gender is not fixed and formed. It is fluid and formless. It's interchangeable. Transgender ideology also introduces a third category to human bodily identity. The third category... The transgender person is someone who is neither traditionally male nor female. Gender fluid, or, or that phrase non-binary. So some, some are saying there's a third category of sex, but what does the Bible say? Well, we have in the passage before us, in, in uh, verse 12 of Matthew 19, take a look where Jesus speaks about eunuchs. Matthew 19, verse 12. This is what he says. For there are eunuchs who, number one, have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who, number two, have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs, number three, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Is there a third sex? This this eunuch? Well, no, a eunuch was someone who lacked the ability to procreate, not someone who was sexless or a third category of sex. In Matthew 19, they were castrated males, made eunuchs by men. They were, secondly, men who made themselves eunuchs. In other words, they devoted themselves to the kingdom and and thus set aside marriage and, and the possibility of procreation. And then there was that that third category, those who are born eunuch. They're not sexless. These are biological males who don't have the ability to procreate for whatever reason. We might call this condition intersex or uh, hermaphroditism. So what Jesus says here maintains his assertion of binary sexes a few verses earlier, male and female, he made them. No matter how you feel, 
He made you male or female, and he knows best. Surely the, the creator of creation, the creator of human beings, knows what they're made for. And so as we have great sympathy for people who struggle with confused feelings, we've got to remember that we live in a fallen world with fallen sexual desires, and so we lovingly point people to God's word for salvation and then for sanctification as how they should live. And we've got to do that ourselves. When Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately, do you remember what they did? They, they covered up their bodies. They, they were naked and unashamed, and they cover up their bodies. They, they were ashamed when before they were unashamed. And here is the beginning, if you like, of even body dysphoria of different kinds. Ever since the fall of man, men and women have had a sinful disenchantment with the body that God gave them. People might have certain things they feel about their body, but rather than having your body changed to suit your mindset, you need your mindset changed to fit your body. See that? What's going on now is people, oh, I've got this gender dysphoria. I've got a, I think I'm a, a, you know, a man saying, I think I'm a woman. I need to change my body to fit my mind. No, you need a mind change to fit your body. God's telling you something about who you are by the male or female body that he gives you. Be transformed, how? By gender surgery? By puberty blockers? No, by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12. So your birth sex is the gender you are. You don't choose, God does. He made two sexes, male and female. And what does he say in Genesis 1.31? It is very good. It is very good. Truth number two, God created binary sexes. Which leads to truth number three. God created complementary sexes. So let me just read that text from Genesis 1.27 that Jesus refers to in Matthew 19. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In that one statement, there is equality and difference. All of us, everyone in this room today, both men and women, bear God's image fully. Doesn't mean that God is male and female. No, God is spirit and not body. Oh, Jesus became a man, still has that body in terms of a, a resurrected body. No, God is one God and three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The members of the Trinity are equally God, but different persons. The Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. One functions as the Father, the other functions as the Son. In other words, God is Trinity one and three. So God loves the complementarity of unity and diversity. And there's something then vaguely analogous in this, in the way that he creates man as one species and two sexes in his image. Important to understand that. Men and women are equal in value, but wonderfully different. Different. And so we need to celebrate both. Both the equality, but the difference as well. And, and, and in this statement from the beginning, you have binary sexes that are, that are also dimorphic. That means they, they have sexually different bodies according to the, the sex. Remember, they were made to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. That's what God commands them, right? God's intention for their marriages to produce children. It's the means by which 
He spreads his dominion throughout the world and rules it and images forth himself through image bearers as they spread across the earth. God does this. And this is biology 101, folks. I've not got time to explain it, but it's clear that you need a human man and a human woman to make a human baby. That's my extent of my biology lesson for you tonight. A heterosexual and complementary union is undeniably in view. So we need these complementary, equal and different sexes for the reproduction of the human race. Two men together, two women together cannot make life. But a man and a woman can. And, and isn't it a beautiful thing that at the physically most difficult point of a man and woman, they can come together and make life. There are clear physical differences between men and women. And so we should act and dress accordingly and culturally appropriately to display this. Men should act and dress like men and women should act and dress like women. Men and women are physically different. It may surprise you to know that on average, men have over a thousand percent more testosterone coursing through their bodies than women. I'm not sure some of the men here this evening are feeling that. <laughs> At six o'clock, nearly six o'clock on a Sunday, I don't feel like I've got a thousand percent more testosterone coursing through my veins. Men on average can lift more weight than women on average. They, on average, perform markedly better in combat situations. On average, can run faster than women. So Usain Bolt was so much faster than the top women sprinter. Women are stronger in other ways. They, in general, live longer than men. They give birth. Fellas, if it was up to us, end of the human race, isn't it? Yeah, end, done. We're not doing it. We go down with the man flu, don't we? There's a reason why we're out for a week. We need to rest, you know, two weeks, we're done, you know. Different strengths, right? But we're not just physically different. Adam and Eve were made functionally different in the way they related to each other. We see an order in creation. Adam was made first. And then Eve, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, the Lord God formed man from dust to the ground and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then a few verses later, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So she is from the man and for the man as God takes the rib from his side and brings her to him. And God is the first father of the bride, if you like, bringing her to the man and, and he takes her as his Wife, She is one who is equal to him and suitable to fit him. She complements him. Eve's role is a helper, though. She's a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. She's in the image of God, the same as him. Equal dignity and value and worth, yet she is different from him and created after him. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. But she, there's equality there, right? Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. But she's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. As there is a dependence on him for this life. There is order, you see. And the order is played out in how they function and relate. The realm of thought in Genesis 2 is not 
God bringing a leader to Adam, but bringing him someone to lead, someone who would help him in this commission that God gives him of being fruitful and multiplying. Paul uh, affirms this in, in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Not the case that she's less than him. Clear case that she is to follow him and assist him in displaying God's image to the world. Interestingly, at creation, you see that the woman is taken from the man and for the man. And ever since then, every man has been born of a woman. Beautiful picture of God's design, isn't it? Even the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, Mary. The woman is designed to give and nurture life. Women are life givers and they nurture. You know what it's like, don't you? You, you can give me a baby that's crying or give me a baby that's not crying and the baby could start crying and we're stiff and we're holding. Give that same baby to my wife. Give the baby to my mum. They start rocking. There's the, there's the kind of rock, you know. It just happens and the baby stops crying. There's a nurturing instinct there. So the woman is designed to give a nurture life. The man is designed to protect and provide for life. So we could say at the heart of manhood is a life-preserving leadership that protects and provides for women appropriate to the relationship that you might have. A life-preserving leadership that protects and provides for women appropriate to the relationship you have. That's going to be different if that's your wife or daughter to, to a, brother, a sister in the church, a mother or, or whoever it might be. And at the heart of womanhood is life-giving, helping and encouragement towards men appropriate to the relationship you might have. Can a man ever help? Can a woman ever lead? Of course. But what God wants to display in manhood and womanhood is primary masculine leadership and a primary feminine helpership. Neither is of more value than the other. Both are equal, but, but that difference is necessary for harmony and flourishing and glorifying God as men and women. Friends, men and women are different and that is good, but they are not meant to be competitors. They are meant to be complements. So truth number three is God created complementary sexes and they come together in a heterosexual union in marriage to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion, which leads to truth number four as we draw to a close soon. Truth number four is that God created complementarian marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. Back to Matthew 19, which is our main text. And note, after Jesus quotes from Genesis 1, he quotes from Genesis 2.24. He moves to marriage. Jesus says that God made man and woman for marriage as a creation ordinance. After the creation of the woman, God says, and it's there in the text, therefore, in other words, because I made a man and woman, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus goes on there, you can see it in the text. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So so we see that monogamy is the creation norm. One man and one woman are in view. 
Not two or three or more shall become one flesh. Sorry, the two shall become one flesh. Not three or more shall become one flesh. This is the norm for all marriages. Polygamy is not. Adulterous affairs are not. Open marriages are not. It is also non-incestuous. The man leaves his family and starts a new one with a woman. That means he marries outside of his blood family. Leviticus 18 defines the the boundaries that she or he is not to be a quote unquote close relative. So incest laws in the Old Testament reflect the creation norm and they remain today. Interesting, when you see the New Testament writers talk about sexuality and marriage, they arc back to creation. Creation norm stays today. The woman was taken from the man for the man and the man leaves his home to start a new one. He is related to the old family relationship by blood, but the new one by covenant as he holds fast to her. I am related to my mother and father by blood, but I left my mother and father and I hold fast to my wife in a covenant relationship. So God defines marriage, not culture, And not any changing law. God designed marriage in creation between one man and one woman. And God does the marriage. Listen. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. So the wedding ceremony. I'm doing a wedding when when I get back to Canada in in, in, uh, November. Um, In the wedding ceremony that day, God will be the main actor. Not the pastor, or the man, or the woman, or the congregation, but God. Marriage is God's design, and marriage is God's doing, and that's why it's for life. That's why permanence is in view. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And of course, there are biblical exceptions uh, to that, that have been traditionally held over the years. He joins the man and the woman, so he should separate them. That's why marriage vows say, don't they? Till death do us part. Till death do us part. In heaven, we will not be married. (coughs) We will not be married in heaven because the earthly picture of marriage is to point to the heavenly reality of the marriage of Christ and the church. And when that heavenly reality is there, the earthly picture is needed no more. Just as Jesus in Matthew 19 refers to creation, Genesis 2.24, to divine marriage, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. In verse 31 of chapter 5, and he explains that marriage is a picture of the love of God for his people in the gospel. He quotes Genesis 2.24, just like Jesus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the Apostle Paul says this, This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul tells us that marriage is a picture of the gospel, of Christ the bridegroom who came from heaven and died for for his bride, the church. And it looks like this, Paul says. Wives are to submit to their husband as the church submits to Christ, Ephesians 5.24. And husbands... You are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, it's not marriage in general that's designed to reflect Christ and the church. It's marriage of this kind, with a Christ-like male headship and a a church-like wifely submission 
that God designs to reflect the marvellous reality of the gospel. As a husband and wife come together in that way, they are pointing to realities, some of the greatest realities in the universe. See how important it is to embrace God's design for man, woman and marriage. It's complementarian marriage. So truth number four, God created complementarian marriage as a picture of Christ and the church, which leads finally to truth number five, that God created sex good within marriage, but bad and ugly outside of marriage. Good, the bad and the ugly. Jesus says in the passage here, look, they are one flesh in marriage, one flesh. Adam cries out when he sees Eve. She's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And in that way, they have a one flesh bond. But the one flesh union of a a man and woman in marriage is also about sexual union. And the sexual union is a celebration of the covenant commitment they have to each other. It's a consummation, if you like. And it points to the covenant commitment that God has for his people. So when people say to you, Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. You can say, yes, he does. He tells us implicitly that the only appropriate place for sexual relations is between a man and a woman in marriage. So that any thinking, speaking, acting, touching outside of that prescription is sin. And this cuts out all sexual immorality, heterosexual or homosexual. You see how good God's design is. This one flesh union is nothing less than sexual and represents the union of a whole person with another in marriage. So then it's not a one-off act, an urge that is satisfied. It is a consummation that creates and celebrates a union. Sex is good. It is right, but you need to know what it is for. If you use it outside of God's prescription in biblical marriage, it's not good. It's bad and ugly and it's dangerous. In marriage, it affirms spiritual truth and makes human life. Outside of marriage, it tells a lie and it brings destruction in people's lives. So, friends, you honour God as much by abstaining from any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage as you do by partaking in it in marriage. The hookup culture amongst teens, the pornography epidemic that affects the visible church, The redefinition of marriage in a culture all swims against God's design for sex. It is normal to desire marriage, but God has supreme rights over our bodies. He creates us as sexual beings with sexual desires and then he gives us behavioural guidance as how to use those desires. So that's truth number five to finish. Sex is good within marriage, but it is bad and ugly outside of marriage. Truth number one, Jesus' foundation for manhood, womanhood and marriage is God's word of creation. Truth number two, God created fixed binary sexes. Truth number three, God created complementary sexes. Truth number four, God created marriage to picture Christ and the church. Truth number five, sex is good within marriage, but bad and ugly outside of marriage. So we need to return, friends, to God's word of creation, where he tells us that he's made us either male or female. He loves the shape and form and function of manhood and womanhood, and that it is complementarian in its form. And it pictures the gospel in a marriage, and that God designs that marriage as the place for sexual union and procreation, and he declares it very good. But you know what? Married or single... 
We don't need anything from the world to secure a joyful, meaningful existence. You know what you need to do? Simply trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and new life and then thankfully own his design for you. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who labour and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from my words here in Matthew 19. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what we need, friends. Rest. Peace with God through forgiveness of our sins. Jesus does that. Come to him. Now take his yoke and have new life. Because the identity you crave is the one you already have. To be the creation of God, made according to his wise design, loved by a heavenly father who gave his son to make you his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've even heard the word of God through the word of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and it speaks to these foundational realities and truths about who we are created in your image and how we are to function wonderfully as men and women. I pray that we would joyfully hold to these truths, obey them and live them out in the church, that we would present a joyful counterculture to the world around which is spiralling downwards. And and when we do these things and they, they see how we are and see how we're flourishing, they will look and they will say how and why and And then we have an open door to the gospel, the very word of God. And I pray that we would see these moments of darkness in the culture around as a mission moment for the church, uh, that we might get holy in here, that we might serve you well for the cause of the Great Commission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.